We're in Ezekiel. Everybody's favorite Old Testament book. Did some of you read some of Ezekiel? I think it's a chapter 1, chapter 10, chapter 28. All right. Did you see anything interesting in there? That's correct. You're even told that in chapter 10. Right, but I mean, it was, it started out calling them cherubim in chapter 10, but he didn't call them cherubim. All right, that's all right. Chapter 28, anything interesting there? Fusion between the skin of the terms, our side, Satan, whether or not he is there or not. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, we'll have a look, we'll have a look. Um, This is a little digression, but it does actually feed into what we've been talking about, uh, especially chapter 28. Uh, And there are some features in chapter 1 and chapter 10, which I just want to call your attention to. They're kind of interesting. Um, Yeah, there are ways of reading the Bible that are are, um, very speculative and highlight points that shouldn't be highlighted because they're not highlighted by the author. Um, There are others that are easily missed which are interesting and give us some insight. They don't answer all of our questions but they give us some insight into some things if we're paying attention. And so that's kind of what I want to do for some of the time tonight to look at this, okay? You know, you might feel that when you go into a book like Ezekiel, and then we'll go into Zechariah probably next week, um, you might feel that you're just completely out of your depth because you've got all of these living creatures with their eyes and their faces pointing different directions and they're hovering this way and turning at right angles going that way. It's really strange. Um, And so you might feel that, that... you know, are we, are we into UFO world here or what's going on? But again, please be patient. Uh, this is, the Bible is much more straightforward than we think. But uh, often we're just, we're caught out because we are stuck in a normal way of interacting with the world which does not count the reality of other spiritual beings that are presented to us in the Bible. But there is a huge uh, permanent link between heaven and earth. Earth being God's creation, earth being upheld by God. Angels visiting earth when Jacob was uh, fleeing from uh, Esau he uh, lay down near Bethel and he had a vision and a dream of a ladder. Do you remember? And what was going up and down the ladder? Angels. Angels of heaven going up and down this ladder. Um, what, it's not explained, but what, what should that at least communicate to you? If nothing else, it ought to communicate that there is a great deal of discourse and work 
going on in the spiritual realm between heaven and earth that we don't see. We are used to talking about the demonic realm, or at least, you know, when we hit the armor of God in Ephesians 6 and some other places. And we know that that we're supposed to be careful and watch out for Satan and, and the rest of it. And yet, at the same time, we often discount the demonic, the, the uh, satanic realm when things are going contrary to, uh, in our lives and when, um, you know, when we feel that we, we're kind of pushing through something that's unseen. You know, we're, we're meeting resistance. Um, so I minister up in Willits. You know, Willits is a dark place, isn't it, guys? It just is a dark place. Um, these, these things are real. We don't see them, but they're real. Reality is more than you can see. I was talking at the beginning here about people not thinking, just feeling. Um, are you aware that you can't see a number? Are you aware of that? Have you ever thought about that? Can I use your, your pad? Oh, go on. That's, uh, I can use this. Oops. What's that? Okay. What's that? The other one underneath. Ah, is that's a numeral? Yes. What's that? Is that the number two? Okay. If that's the number two, I've just destroyed the number two. You'll now have to count one, three, four. But I haven't destroyed the number two, have I? Because that's not the number two. That's just a numeral. It's a symbol of two, isn't it? It's just a character. There are other the Chinese, they have that kind of character for two. They wouldn't recognize what that was. Well, they would, but because of the influence of, of English. You can't see numbers that are immaterial. They're not material things. Do you believe in them? You have to. You can't do math. You can't do science without them. So there's a spiritual realm. Do you see? There's an unseen, immaterial realm. It exists and we mess with it all the time. Memory. Can you see your memories? No, you can, you can remember your memories or parts of things, but they're gone. They don't exist now. Okay? How about the future? Does it exist now? Now it exists now. The future doesn't exist now. Do you believe in the future? Well, you shouldn't if you don't believe in things you can't touch, taste, feel, yeah, all the rest of that nonsense that people come out with. We do it all the time, you see, but we've not, we've been conditioned out of thinking. We've 
been conditioned out of, out of uh, just day-to-day um, contact with things like consciousness. Um, I don't want to turn this into a big philosophical apologetics thing because I teach apologetics too. But you know, this, if I point to somebody, like John over here, not only is it bad manners, but it's, it shows intentionality. Intentionality. Okay? Pointing to do something, you know? How do you explain intentionality? How do, you, how do you explain a first and third person perspective on things? Because we have both of them. Okay? Do you think a cow has a third person perspective? So, that it's aware of? No. So, these are immaterial realities that are, we have to interact with all the time. And yet, we condition ourselves to just believing the physical. And uh, it is a huge mistake. The Bible presents us a worldview in which these immaterial things make sense, as well as the material things. Do you see? Atheism, you know, materialism doesn't make sense of any of that stuff. It says it's just there. That's what's called blind faith. But I'm supposed to be doing Ezekiel and biblical theology. So, Ezekiel chapter 1, he's by the river Chebar, verse 1, and the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. He's a priest, verse 3. Please note that, because that becomes important at the end of the book. Verse 4. Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north. When you, uh, in the Bible, often where there's a whirlwind, Nahum has a whirlwind. And uh, Job, of course, God comes out of the whirlwind. When you have a whirlwind, often in the Bible, uh, it means the activity of God. You know, Elijah goes up in a whirlwind, doesn't he? Yeah? That doesn't mean every whirlwind is, is God doing something. It just means that when you see it in the Bible... It's uh, usually God's doing something. That's why it's mentioned. The whirlwind was coming out of the north in a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself. Well, that's pretty impressive. Brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst like the colour of amber out of the midst of the fire. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man so, general, the general likeness was kind of a, of a man, but not completely like a man. But the general form, you, if you were drawing it, you'd probably draw the, the man part first. Okay, and then get to the heads and the wings afterwards. Each one had four faces and each one had four wings. This is really strange stuff. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. Notice that. Calves feet, no, hoofed. They sparkled like the colour of burnished bronze. Uh, if you'll remember that the, uh, um, the figure in Daniel, chapter, uh, chapter 7, 
no, chapter 10, chapter 10 of Daniel. When he appears to Daniel and gives him a vision, he's got that, those feet like burnished bronze. Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, again the same. The hands of a man were under their wings on their four sides, and each of the four had faces and wings. You say, okay, that's, I'm just, my mind's blown. I understand, but you can draw this. If you're good at drawing, fortunately for you, I'm not, so I'm not going to draw it. But if you were good at drawing, you could draw this thing. Okay, I mean, similitude of it. Their wings touched one another. That means the creatures, the, one, the wing of one creature touched the wing of another creature. Do you see? The creatures did not turn when they went, but, went, uh, but each one went straight forward. You're going to find out why that's the case in a minute. As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man. Read this out to me. So, a face of a man. Okay. <clears throat> oh, this is. Um, where am I? Thank you. Their wings stretched upward, two wings of each one touched one another. The two covered their bodies. Each one went straight forward. They went wherever the spirit wanted to go. The spirit is not really explained here. And they did not turn as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright and out of the fire went lightning. I mean, this is a strange, very overwhelming experience. The living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like a flash of lightning. Now, as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. So, there's there's this weird creature, okay? Four faces, four wings, two wings up here and then two wings covering itself. You got it? And then you got this wheel, giant wheel next to it. Okay, so there's a, there's a creature and a wheel, and a creature and a wheel, and then behind them a creature and a wheel, and a creature and a wheel. Do you see? The appearance of the wheels and their workings was like the cover of, color of beryl, and all four had the same likeness. The appearance of their workings was, as it were... A wheel in the middle of a wheel. You know, so what's one of those things that you spin? Gyroscope. Gyroscope yeah. looking thing, yeah? <clears throat> when they moved, they went forward any one of four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. Uh, so they've been, I think the military have been making these cars where they have these just big ball wheels. Okay, so the wheels can go that way and then it can go that way and that way, do you see? That's what's going on here. As for their rims, they were so high that they were awesome. They're using the word as it's supposed to be used. And their rims were full of eyes all around the four of them. Full of eyes. Just believe it, guys. I don't know why they had eyes on them. They just did. 
when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went because there the spirit went and the wheels were lifted together with them for the spirit of the living creatures within the wheels. So the wheel and the living creature go together. Now, this is very strange, but it appears to be that God has made these creatures, at least in this um, incarnation, with their spirits outside of their bodies. Can God do something like that? Of course he can. God's made lots of weird stuff on the planet, hasn't he? So, this is a bit weirder. I've got to, I grant you, this, is, this goes, pushes it out a little bit too far. Bit far but but uh, still, God likes variety, you know. Verse 21. When those went, these went. When they stood, these stood. And then... Sorry, when those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up together with them for the spirit of the living creatures within the wheels. The likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creatures was like the colour of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. Under the firmament, their wings spread out straight one toward another. Each one had two which covered one side and each one had two which covered the other side of the body. What's going on here is... uh, Um, drawn graphically brilliantly for you is that you have uh, the living creature okay so here it is okay and then you have the wheel okay within the wheel we can't see it it's too dull it's too dull some people are not just not happy All right, okay, fair enough. So, okay, so this is kind of what you've got going on, okay? Not to scale, obviously. And we've got wings coming out here and the wings are touching, okay? Yes? What? Never never mind about that. Okay. So, and then on top of their heads you've got this platform, this firmament, do you see? Yes? And then, uh, if I could draw, and I can't, you'd have it going back like this, okay? And you'd have another wheel kind of here with the the spirit here, and then another one here, yes? Do you see what's going on? This is the firmament. And the firmament is called something like terrible crystal, whatever terrible crystal is. It's crystalline... You're not, you're not told what terrible crystal is. I wish you would have done, but do you want to guess what it might be? I don't know. Hey? Awesome crystal. Yeah, that, that's you just replacing one word with another one. Awesome crystal? Ice. It's possible that it's ice. Possible. I don't know. We could be you when you get to heaven. You could be completely at home. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you'll be at home anyway. But for you particularly, yes. So, 
that's what that's what we've got here. Okay. Okay, go to Revelation chapter 4. Teaching through the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights, by the way, at Agape, if any of you uh, have a Wednesday night free. So, um, chapter 4, verse 4. Now, he's seen, well, look, look, he's, he's uh, seen a thr- somebody sat on a throne, yeah? Verse 2. And he has a rainbow around the throne, verse 3. Got it? Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads, and so on and so forth. And it gets really strange. But you have this throne in heaven, okay? Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. First living creature was a, like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third face of a man, the fourth flying eagle. Okay? Chapter 4, Revelation, that's the throne room of God. What you have here, well, we'll keep reading. Verse 23, under the firmament, their wings spread out straight, one toward another. Each one had two which covered one side, each one had two which covered the other side of the body. When they went, I heard the noise of their wings, like the noise of many waters, they roared. Like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult, like the noise of an army, army marching into a town, making a big noise. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. A voice came from above the firmament that was over their heads. Whenever they stood, they let down their wings. And above the firmament, over their heads, was the likeness of a throne. In appearance, like a sapphire stone, on the likeness of the throne was a likeness of the appearance of a man high above it. Also, from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw, as it were, the color of amber, with the appearance of fire all around within. And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around, like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. What he's seeing coming down to earth is he's seeing this firmament with wheels, as it were, these strange wheels and the creatures attending them. On top of it is a throne and the glory of God in the likeness of a man is sat on top of the throne. This is almost like the... the, Well, in the ancient world, I don't know if you know this, but great conquerors used to have these they used to put their thrones on these vehicles and slaves would, you know, would drive them. And uh, so they would, if you wanted to see the king and he was, he was uh, coming to town, you know, that he would be in one of these great big vehicles 
with the, with the throne inside it. This is kind of what's going on here. You see? It's like the throne of God is, is visiting earth. God's limo. Yeah. But a, a much more impressive than the Pope Mobile, yes. So, and he said to me, Son of man, verse 1 of chapter 2, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And the Spirit entered into me and he spoke to me. Um, so, this is a communicate, it's astonishing what's going on here. It's a communication from the throne of God to this priest, Ezekiel. Astonishing stuff. All right, chapter 10. And I wish we could go through this because there's, there's all kinds of great stuff here and we will look at chapter 11 too, but um, not until a bit later. <clears throat> so chapter 10 of Ezekiel, and I looked and there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, so they're called cherubim there, not living creatures. So cherubim do not look like Raphael painted them. Okay? Not nice little babies with short little wings and pudgy faces. They look like these weird things. There appeared something like a sapphire stone, having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. Then he spoke to the man clothed with linen. Now, this is the man clothed with linen who appears in the previous chapter who's, who marks people with, <laughs> with, on the forehead with ink. Okay? Um, and said, go in among the wheels, under the cherub, fill your hands with the coals of fire. Notice that. Coals of fire. From among the cherubim and scattered them over the city and he went in as I watched. Now the cherubim was standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. The cloud is the glory cloud that was in the temple. A physical, real temple. Not a spiritual temple, folks. A spiritual, a real temple that the Babylonians were going to destroy. The, the Spirit of God went out from that temple. Please get this. That's why I'm kind of emphasizing it like I'm emphasizing it right now. So this takes place after Israel has gone into taken over by Assyria and and these guys are ready to Babylonia, not Babylonia. not Assyria. Well, but I'm talking about Israel. Israel. Oh, that, that was 120 years before right. this. Okay. Yes. Yeah, sure. So the Shekinah glory was still in the temple in Jerusalem. Yes. Yes. Okay. Interesting, isn't it? It is. To think that they locked it up and a few other things with him still in there. So, um, the cherubim was standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple and the house was filled with the cloud and the cloud was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. This is the, the presence of God that was in the Holy of Holies in the Jerusalem temple before the Babylonians destroyed it in five, uh, well no, it would have been, it was, Jerusalem was, was overcome in 586 and so this is possibly the 586, 586 episode because Ezekiel went in the second 
Um, I should have given you this before I said this, shouldn't I? Chronologically, I'm at fault here, okay? But he went in the second captivity of around about 604 BC. This is now later, okay, so um, 18 years, a bit more, 20 years later, and he's in Babylon. Daniel has already gone in the first bunch, first captivity. Jeremiah is still in, uh, well, around Jerusalem at this time, you see. But Jeremiah isn't given this vision. Ezekiel, who's in Babylonia, is given this vision. That's what's going on. So this is around 586 BC that he's seeing these things. Uh, then it goes about the sound of the Lord, the sound of their wings and everything. Then it happened, verse 6, when he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim. And he went in and took beside, and stood beside the wheels. And the cherub stretched out his hand, because he had a man's hand, remember, from among the cherubim to the fire that was among the cherubim, and took some of it, and put it into the hands of the man clothed with linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of of a man's hand under their wings. And when I looked, there were four wheels by the cherubim. One wheel by one cherubim, another wheel by each of the the other cherubs. The wheels have... The wheels appeared to have the colour of a beryl stone. As for their appearance, all four looked alike, as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went... They went toward any of their four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. Of course, what's Ezekiel used to? Cartwheels, isn't he? Yeah, chariot wheels. Verse 12, And their whole body with their back, their hands, their wings, their wheels that had... uh, that the four had, were full of eyes all around. That would have freaked me out. I mean, just given a pair of eyes, not, not covered with eyes. I mean, that's really freaky, isn't it? But, but there's, there's something going on here. Eyes, what do eyes do? Eyes are kind of the windows of the soul, they're called, called yes? Eyes see, eyes communicate. They do more than see, they communicate too. They're alive, they take in stuff. So what is this at least telling us? That, that there is a, an awareness of the human realm, of what's going on in the world, which goes over and above our awareness of things. And I've not got to my point. I'm, I'm trying to hurry up here. As for the wheels... They were called in my hearing, wheel. Well, that's original. Each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face was the face of a man. The third face, the face of a lion. The fourth, the face of an eagle. So, what have we got? Cherub. Read them out. Man. Lion. Eagle, question. Did we? Did we lose the ox?
What's the face of a cherub? <laughs> You're just told. You're just told. The face of a cherub. A cherub's face. You know what a you know what a man looks like. You know what a lion looks like. You know what an ox looks like. You know what an eagle looks like. You know what a man, a lion, an eagle. But what's a cherub look like? The only way you'll know what a cherub looks like, or him, is if he looks like an ox. (laughs) Folks, think about it. If he says the face of a cherub, you ask what John asked. What's the face of a cherub? Either we don't know, in which case he gave us no information whatsoever, or we can draw a parallel and say, oh, it looks like an ox. Or in Revelation, a calf. Or a calf in the book of Revelation. Chapter 28. Yes. That's not, that, that's a different thing. Yes. Chapter 28. All right. Some of you know chapter 28 because it has these prophecies against the king of Tyre or the prince of Tyre, Tyre being a, very, a major city uh, of the Philistines, one of the major trading ports of the Mediterranean in the ancient world. And it says all this stuff here about, uh, in the first verses about the Prince of Tyre. And then verse 11 says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. So he's spoken about the Prince of Tyre, and now he's going to talk to the king of Tyre. And say to him, Thus says the Lord God. Now, pay attention. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Where's my board rubber? You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, the diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes. That's very strange. I'm not sure what's going on, but it seems to be musical. Was prepared for you on the day you were created. If this is talking about the literal king of Tyre, he's a weird guy. Now, according to covenant theologians, many modern covenant theologians anyway, this is Adam who is being described here. Let's actually read the Bible instead of try and read our theology into it and see on the basis of chapter 1 and chapter 10, if we can figure out who this is. 
you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. Have we read about the stones of fire? What was the man doing? He went in the midst of the cherubs and the cherub handed him a stone of fire. This is a cherub who walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Do you see he's one of those guys? The Bible's easy if you just pay attention. Now, easy to believe, not if you don't want to believe it. Really. The stuff that that the Bible presents you with, if you don't want to believe that Goliath was as tall as he was, or Og, king of Bashan, was as tall as he was, you don't have to believe it. And you're the same as the world, because they don't believe it either. If you want to believe the Bible and Noah's Ark and all of that stuff, you're going to have to actually believe the Bible. I believe the Bible. You are the anointed cherub who covers, I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in all your ways from the day that you were created till iniquity was found in you. No man was perfect in the day that he was created. Apart from Jesus. This is not talking about a human being. Is it talking about Adam? Perfect in the day that he was created? Well, he was in Eden. But Adam is a man, he's not a cherub. And he didn't walk up down these stones of fire. And we are not told he had this incredible garment on. And it goes in, by the abundance of your trading, and this is strange stuff, you were filled with violence within and you sinned, therefore I cast you as profane out of the mountain of God. Well, this mountain of God, folks, is probably not Mount Zion. Because this guy's in Eden, the garden of God. This mountain of God is probably heaven, which is called a, a mountain in several places in Scripture. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, in the midst of the fiery stones. And it says your heart was lifted up with your beauty and so on and so forth. It's a difficult passage, but this is a cherub. And he walks on the stones of fire. And he was in the mountain of God and he was perfect and he had this incredible raiment and he was musical. Most Christian interpreters have understood who this is. And you know what's really weird about this? What does a cherub look like? Isn't that strange? Well, oxes are not unattractive things. Yeah. I don't think oxes are unattractive. 
wildebeest I'm not into, but yeah. I'm not talking about I'm talking about as in as in creations. You know, parts of God's creation is these are all beautiful in their way. In the history of the church, yes, they have said this is Satan. Now what's popular among uh, covenant theologians, those that spiritualize the Bible a lot, and this is why I'm giving you this, is that they say this is Adam. And the, way, the, the reason that they draw on this is because they think that the garment that he wears here was a priestly garment. Well, it might be. But it's Adam isn't wearing it. Adam was, I thought Adam was naked, yeah. Like, and he was, guess what? When he was clothed, he wasn't clothed in a fantastic garment. And he wasn't perfect when he was clothed. He had sinned. So this cannot be Adam. But it can be Satan. Do you see? Yeah. Yeah. Well, angelic being. He's a cherub. He's a cherub. I think it, it almost certainly is Satan. No, this is talking about, no, no, no. This is talking about God speaking to him in his perfect role. This is the role he was created for. To walk, yeah, to walk in the midst of those stones of fire that we read about. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says, Woe is me, who shall take me? He sees the throne room of God, doesn't he? Okay? I'm a man of unclean lips. And then what happens? One of the, yeah, someone takes a, not someone, something takes a coal and touches his lips from beneath the altar. Which is the limousine. Which is the limousine. So these are priests. They, they have a priestly function, do you see? Which is why the man could go in but he couldn't grab the stone. He had to be given the stone. You see? Because these have a priestly function, just as they do in Revelation 4. There are some differences in the number of wings and stuff like that, and I I can't explain all of that. God can do what he wants. But um, this is they have a priestly function. And this guy has a priestly function. And he's a cherub. So, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. All right. Look at chapter 11 of Ezekiel. You go about there. So, I believe that this cherub is Satan. Satan. 
prince? The prince is actually the prince of Tyre, the, the actual individual. That's being spoken to, although he is being spoken to in an oracle, in a kind of a prophetic way, which seems to go beyond him. And yet, and you see that in Ezekiel quite a bit. You know, the Assyrian is spoken to in the same way, strange way. Um, Chapter 11 says this, Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the what? East gate of the Lord's house, which faces eastward. And then it, uh, it talks about all of these things that are going on. And so the judgment's going to come and the, the uh, glory cloud of God is going to leave. Chapter 40. Forty, yeah. Forty. <laughs> I should say, I should pronounce it with a D, and then you'll you'll get it. Forty, instead of forty. <laughs> I'm sorry, English people do daft things with language too. It's anyway, chapter forty. In the 25th year of our captivity, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, on the 14th year after the city was captured, on the very same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he took me there. In the visions of God, he took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. And on it, toward the south, was something like the structure of a city. He took me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. This is certainly not Jerusalem as Ezekiel knew it. He's on a very high mountain, and he sees something like the structure of a city. This is, this is not familiar to him completely. The man said to me, son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and fix your mind on everything. Why does he want him to do that? He wants him to pay attention. He wants him to pay pay really, really careful attention. Doesn't he? Yeah. Now, um, If you've read Ezekiel 40 through 48, there's some great passages in it, but let's face it, folks, some of the passages in Ezekiel 40 through 48 are dull. Because they give you all of these dimensions about the rooms, and this room over here facing south, and this big and that big, and you went up ten steps and did this, and and so on. And then you turn around and and it describes the, the room over here, and it's exactly the same. Right? Well, why don't you just tell us the same for both rooms, you know? Well, it's because it's, it's giving you detail that is important. So, you really pay attention to these details. You really pay attention to the dimensions that are mentioned. <clears throat> uh, 
Fix your mind on everything I show you, for you were brought here so that I might show them to you. Declare to the house of Israel everything you see. Now there was a wall all around the outside of the temple. In the man's hand was a measuring rod six cubits long. So with the 18 inch cubit, that's uh, what? Six times 18, which I have no idea what it is. It's what? Nine. All right. And he measured the width of the wall structure, one rod, and the height, one rod. So now he's going around measuring this thing. And, and uh, this is why Ezekiel's got to pay attention. Good job I wasn't there. Okay, because I, I'd have got bored really quick with this. Then he went to the gateway, which faced east, and he went up its stairs and measured the threshold of the gateway, which was one rod wide, and the other threshold was one rod rod wide, each gate chamber. You get it? Do you get it? Do I need to go on? I mean, you just go down, and it reads like, um, you know, one of the most boring uh, manuals that you could read. I know it's inspired and I know it's important and it's very, very important but it's still boring, folks. I mean, come on. So, um, so he's measuring all of this stuff, yes? This is vital. He's, been, he's got to pay attention to it. Uh, chapter 44. Same, uh, sorry, not chapter 44. Chapter 40, verse 44. Outside the inner gate were the chambers for the singers in the inner court, one facing south at the side of the northern gateway and the other facing north at the side of the southern gateway. Then he said to me, this is the the chap who's uh, got the measuring rod, this chamber which faces south is for the priests who have the charge of the temple. The chamber which faces north is for the priests who have the charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok, from the sons of Levi, who come near to the Lord to minister to him. So here you have priests who, who minister the temple, and then you have a bunch of priests that have a special access to the altar. Okay, that's kind of strange. Right, chapter 43. Aren't you glad that I didn't go all the way through 40 and 41 reading each verse to you? Afterward, he brought me to the gate the gate that faces toward the... Did the temple... He mentioned an east gate, didn't he? In uh, chapter 11. Do you remember? The east gate. That was where the limo was parked for a while. Okay, it came out... the, The glory cloud came out from the temple. The glory came out from that east gate. It was a literal temple, folks. It was a literal temple. 
Behold, the glory of, God, of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. That's back earlier on. Chapter 9. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Chiba, and I fell on my face. This is, the, this, is this contraption again with the throne on it and the cherubim. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. So what you have here in Ezekiel is that in chapter, well, chapters, that's an H, 10 and 11, um, I'll just call it the Shekinah, leaves via the east gate of a literal temple. Now, in chapter 43, the Shekinah, which he says it's the same, it's the same one, it's the same vision, enters via the east gate. The only question you've got to ask is that is this is this a literal temple? You see, what's going on here is that you have an ark, a literary device that's built into Ezekiel, into the structure of Ezekiel, that ties the first part of Ezekiel together with the last part of Ezekiel. Do you see that? The last part. Yes. Remember everything that we've seen so far, all the picture that we have built up. Remember, of restoration of glory. Don't forget that picture. Now Ezekiel is focusing on this amazing temple. By the way. Why on earth would you need to have a temple in restored Israel? Why would there absolutely be a requirement for it? Thank you. All right. What covenant? There you go. The priestly covenant that is given to Phineas in chapter 25. You guys, you forgot it for a while there, didn't you, you see? This is what happens. People forget about this stuff and then they can't put stuff together. But if you recall the priestly covenant and everything that we've been saying about the priestly covenant, you'll see, of course they have to rebuild the temple. Because God's made an everlasting covenant with the successors to Phineas. Do you know who the successors to Phineas were? Who they became? The Zadokites. 
they were the sons, they came from Zadok. At the time of, or Zadok, in the, in the time of um, Solomon, remember, uh, was it uh, Abiathar? There were two priests, basically. There was Abiathar and Zadok. Abiathar went with Adonijah and that rebellion against Solomon. Zadok stayed with Solomon. When Adonijah fell, okay, Solomon didn't kill Abiathar, but he says that he's now, he removed him from the office of high priest. Now the Zadokites had a right of the high priest alone, you see. What you're going to see in Ezekiel is that it's only the Zadokites that can approach to God. So, and the Zadokites are in the line of Phineas. And you can look at that in First Chronicles and other places. Okay. <clears throat> so, look, now, now listen, pay attention here, please. Verse 5. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Just as in 1 Kings 8. Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, they nor their kings by their harlotry or with their carcasses of their kings on their high places. And then he continues here and he says in verse 10, Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel. So you've, you've been taking notes, I hope, Ezekiel, of all of these measurements. That's why Ezekiel was chosen and not Hanabry. Okay, because Ezekiel would have had a, a great big, you know, scroll or slab or something filled with all of these details. And if I'd have been up there, I'd have had a little notebook and said, "Yeah, this is like that, and that's like," that. and just had a few scratchings there. So, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they have. A, And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangements, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances, all its forms and all its laws. That's a lot of detail. You see why Ezekiel had to be a priest. Write it down in their sight so that they may keep its whole design and its ordinances and perform them. This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, repetition, this is the law of the temple. There's a lot of kind of emphasizing and underlining and um, a lot of punctuation around here, isn't there? Like, pay attention and do it. Why, if that's the case, why are so many Christians convinced that this 
whole description is spiritual. It's merely a type of Christ and the church. Why would you go into so much detail if all of this simply meant Christ and the church? I'm going to come back to this. But it's the same people that do that who turn the anointed cherub in chapter 28 into Adam. Brilliant men, but brilliant men can do dumb things. Look at verse 19. You shall give a young bull for the sin offering to the priests, the Levites, who are of the seed of Zadok, who approach me to minister to me, says the Lord God. Only the, as we will see, only the priests of the sons of Zadok can approach to God. Now, there's more to do in these chapters, okay? But I took you on a little tour, a little digression in chapter 1. But remember, chapter 1, I linked up with Revelation chapter 4. Just to show you how important this was. This is the throne of God that's coming to, to earth. Excuse me. Talking to Ezekiel. Chapter 10, it's the same vision. I mean, later on, but it's the same, he's having the same vision. There you are told that the face of a cherub appears to be the face of an ox. Okay? You, um, the stones of fire are mentioned. And somebody goes in and there's handed a stone of fire which is between uh, the cherubim. Chapter 28, there's this guy, the king of Tyre, who was in Eden, who was a cherub, who fell, and he walked up and down on the stones of fire. I believe that's Satan. There's not absolute proof, but in the history of the church, most people have said that is Satan. He had a priestly role, it appears, which was why he had a priestly garment. Um, Now, in chapter chapter 11, the the, uh, glory of God leaves the temple in Babylon in 586 BC through the east gate. In chapter 40, you have this new temple and this new city described, but it's strange, it's not familiar to Ezekiel. We'll come back to this. This temple is huge. It wouldn't fit on present-day Mount Zion. It wouldn't fit in present-day Jerusalem, never mind Mount Zion. It's enormous. It's something like 25 miles of wall, 25 miles um, square. There's a very high mountain there. 
I mean, so it's, it's familiar, but it's not familiar. Um, Ezekiel has to describe this temple and after he's, he's got all this down, he sees the glory of God coming from the east and going through the east gate of this temple and dwelling forever in the holy place, ministered to by the line that comes from Phineas. What you have there is a fulfillment. This is a prophecy, but it's a prophetic foretaste of the fulfillment of the Levitical or the priestly covenant that's given to Phineas in Numbers 25. Why does there have to be a new temple? Because of the covenant. Why does there have to be a throne in Israel in the future? Because of the Davidic covenant. Why do Israel have to be a nation before God and married to God again in their land? Because of the Abrahamic covenant. Why do you, if you've trusted Jesus as your saviour, have to be where he is in glory? Because you're part of the new covenant which you celebrate when you take the Lord's Supper. Or you should. But sometimes we forget what we're doing even though the words are right there. These covenants, folks, they tie the Bible together. They tell you the track that God is on. So what do we do? We neglect the covenants and we spiritualize the Bible and we forget about this and we say the church has replaced Israel and Christ is on his throne in heaven and all the rest of that stuff that the Bible never teaches. And we forget all this, this explicit material that's here which does not contradict any of these covenants that we've seen in the Pentateuch and now in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. It's a continuous uh, communication of what God intends to do. And now you have, although we didn't have it before, we had some intimations in Jeremiah 33 of the Levitical or the, the priestly covenant. Now we can see this is the temple. And it's an extraordinary temple and the glory of God's going to come into it and dwell there forever with Israel. Let's look at a few more things here just to drive this home. <clears throat> look at chapter 44. Look at verse 5. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well See with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the ordinances of the house of the Lord and all of its laws. Why does a priest need to mark well? Surely he knows, doesn't he? He's a priest. He should know this stuff. Why does he have to pay attention? Well, there's a good reason. This is not the Solomon's temple. And the ordinances are different. That's why. There's no high priest in this temple. There's no um, veil over the Holy of Holies. Well, there is a high priest, 
which we can talk about later on. But there's no merely human high priest in this temple. Certain things are different. No day of atonement in this temple, by the way. That's why he has to pay attention. Because this is not the Mosaic covenant that he's talking about, the Mosaic institutions. This is a temple under the new covenant, exactly. The new covenant of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Ezekiel 36 and 37, um, several other places that we've looked at. So, Mark, well, who may enter the house and all who go out from the sanctuary? Verse um, 9. Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. And the Levites, who went far from me, when Israel went astray, who strayed away from me after their idols, they shall bear their iniquity. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary as gatekeepers of the house and ministers of the house. They shall slay the burnt offering and the sacrifice of the people and they shall stand before them to minister to them because they ministered to them before their idols and caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity. Therefore I have raised my hand in an oath against them. Well, you know, that's it then. Because oaths mean what they say. That they shall bear their iniquity. And they shall not come near me to minister to me as priest, nor come near any of the my holy things, nor into the most holy place. But they shall bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. Nevertheless, I will make them keep charge of the temple for all its work and for all that has to be done in it. But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer to me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. Where do you find that under the Mosaic Covenant? You don't. There is a, a... demarcation between sets of Levites. Only those that are from Zadok, from the lineage that goes all the way back to Phinehas, can approach God with offerings. We're not going into why there is offerings and what are the offerings for. That will be, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, hopefully next week. Um, let's get an idea of, of um, what this place actually looks like, its environments. Okay? So, chapter 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east for the front of the temple faced east and the water was flowing from under the right side of the temple south of the altar 
He brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gateway that faces east and there was water running out by the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits. This is a pretty short rod he's got. It's going to take him a while to do this. And he brought me through the waters and the water came up to my ankles. And it's, he goes deeper and it goes deeper I mean, yeah, he, as he goes further along. He's describing in great detail these waters that are coming out from the temple. Verse 7, when I returned there along the bank of the river, there were many trees on one side and on the other. Then he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. This is no ordinary water. It shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there for they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. And it continues. Now look at verse 12. Along the bank of the river on this side and on that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month. month. Because their water flows from the sanctuary, their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. I mean, there's something of that in nature today but not as it should be because we live in a fallen world. And I know that you're asking, well, what do we need medicine for? Isn't this heaven and, and all, all of this stuff? But no, this is not heaven. This is earth. This is earth. And earth, remember the creation project, folks, back in the first course. God made it beautiful, perfect. He put Adam in the garden to dress it and keep it and so on, have dominion over it, over the whole earth. Adam messed it up within a short time because some serpent came in who was Satan and basically Adam fell. He deceived Satan and deceived Adam and Eve. And that was it. But was it it? Was, did God just put that down to, you know, just like experience? All right, I won't try that again. That doesn't work. Or did God know what he was doing, permit the fall, but at the same time, um, not give up on his original purpose? Was his original purpose good? Then what's wrong with him revisiting it? Nothing. God God has good ideas and they're the right ideas and he doesn't say, oh, botch that one, let's try another one. No. Human sin, human history will not frustrate the creation project. This is what the covenants are telling us. This is what this is telling us. 
By the way, is there a covenant that deals with the whole of creation? Is there? A covenant that deals with the whole of creation. It's made with the animals. It's made with the whole of the world. Noahic. The Noahic covenant is made with the whole earth. So there are aspects when this, that these waters heal the whole earth, there are aspects of the Noahic covenant that are being brought into this. Do you see? The stage is being changed. And then it talks about the division of the land. And please don't worry, I'm not going to go down on all of the division of the land. Uh, apart from to say, look at the tribes in chapter 47 and then look at the tribes in chapter 48 and you will see that the tribal names differ somewhat. There's a reason for that where we can't go into now. Chapter 48 describes areas for, uh, for the sanctuary, huge area, and then an area for the Levites, who are the sons of Zadok. They have their own particular district or area. Then there is another area for the other Levites, they're even separated in the land in this temple. And then there's an area for the prince. The prince. Earlier in the, in the book, in well, chapter 44, I think, there is a, a sin offering for the prince. It's, it's strange stuff and I don't fully understand it. But I believe it. I believe it. There's something going on that we don't understand. Um, just to finish off the book here, it says in verse 30, and we'll just read down to 35, these are the exits of the city on the north side measuring 4,500 cubits. The gates of the city shall be named after the tribes of Israel. The three gates northward, one gate for Reuben, and it goes through. And then it says, verse 35, all the way around shall be 18,000 cubits. And the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. Because he's not there now. So, um, this is a a, a beautified land, a glory, glorious temple, divisions and administrations of the priests, the glory of God's come back into it. There are portions and, and uh, laws and stuff that differ from the Mosaic institutions. This is a new covenant temple. There's no high priest in this temple, but there is a high priest in the temple, in a sense. You know who that high priest is, yes? You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay? The book of Hebrews, even though we're not there, I'll cheat a bit and tell you that the book of Hebrews says, since there is a change in the law, there is a change in the high priest also. Do you see? 
This makes sense, folks. You don't have to spiritualize the Bible. You don't have to. You just have to believe it. You say, well, I can't believe this. And, and, and how's the, how are you going to get this massive temple on there? And what about the waters coming out? Jerusalem doesn't have a waters coming out. I know that. But that's not my problem. And it's not your problem. It's God's problem. And guess what? Because it's God's problem, it's not a problem. The only problem that, that there is, is do we believe it? That's always the problem, isn't it? So God puts it in covenants because covenants are rein, uh, reinforcements of plain speech. Amplification saying, listen, pay attention. Because we have a tendency not to pay attention. And when by not paying attention, we piously reinterpret the Bible because we are not paying attention to what God says. And it's really important that, uh, that as, we, as we go into the next course in the New Testament, you remember this stuff. Because <coughs> you're going to get tempted by your own and my own, it's not just me, just you, but we're going to get tempted by, um, by the independent use of our minds. Because we love independence. We love to think independently of this book. We love to figure things out without paying attention to what God says about it. And that's where we go wrong. Because in Eden, as long as Adam and Eve were under the word of God, they were safe. Once Eve decided that the tree was good for food and that was pleasant to the eyes, and then she added a bit of information for herself too, because why, why could she do that? God hadn't told her that. Well, it doesn't matter, because she's an independent arbiter, you see. She can agree with God, but she can also disagree with God. That's the problem. Independence. That's the fall. That's what we're born into. We have a tendency to be independent from God. What is the thing that bridges the gap from our independence, our waywardness, which is so easy for us, and dependence on God? What is that word called that makes us dependent? No. But thanks for trying. Come on. It makes us dependent on God. Is that a good thing? Dependent on God. Is it a good thing to be dependent on God? Okay, so it's not sin. John gets two points because I heard him say it. <laughs> but, do you see how faith makes sense? Faith is not just this eerie, you know, ethereal thing that we just believe and so on. Faith is that thing that, that checks our independence and makes us dependent on God. It's, it reverses the, the curse, the fall. Do you see that? 
So when Jesus, he tells, he tells his disciples what's going on and what's happening and so on, and they, you know, uh, he says, watch out for the leaven of the scribes of the Pharisees. Okay, leaven in the Bible is always bad. I mean, scribes and the Pharisees, he's telling them to watch out, so it's not good stuff that he's talking to them about. What do they do? Reason among themselves that we haven't brought any bread. They're using their reason independently of what he is saying. And so what does Jesus say? Why do you reason that we haven't brought any bread? I've just fed 5,000 people. He's kind of exasperated with them. Where is your faith? Because faith brings us back, stops us wandering off in our own, you know, independent way of thinking, our own autonomy, brings us back into dependence on God. But we cannot be dependent on God if we don't pay attention to his word. Practical application of this. Okay, so I've been counselling for over 20 years. Um, My counsel would be absolutely rubbish if I took them to a passage of the Bible and spiritualised it and said, there, apply it to yourself. Well, what's there to apply? My spiritualisation of what the Bible clearly doesn't say. That's no good to a person who's depressed. He wants something to hang on to, to believe. He doesn't want to be told, oh yeah, this passage here, I know it doesn't say it, but it really means that God cares for you. Well, why don't God just say it then? Because that's what I need. Well, you know what? He He does. He does say it. And that's why counsellors can use the word of God and point people to the word of God. Your marriage getting messed up, point yourself to the word of God. Do you see? You can't understand what's going on. You can't understand these different things. Your propensity to sin in this, that and the other way. You want to be discerning about people? This book... Read the book of Proverbs. It will tell you. Read the book. You'll learn to be discerning. Not on the basis of typologizing and spiritualizing it, but actually believing it. Because, folks, if we read a passage of Scripture and we say, it doesn't actually mean that, it means this spiritual interpretation of it, so you to believe that, I hope you can see our faith doesn't rest in the word of God. It rests in the spiritualization of the word of God. That's not a very good platform. Do you see? Faith, in order to work, has to believe what God says. Eve spiritualized the tree. It's also good to make one wise. That's a bit of spiritual application there. Thanks a lot. Now we're in this kind of trouble because of that, do you see? Well, because of Adam you know, partaking. 
But you see how dangerous it can be and how safe it is just to believe. So when we get to these weird things in Ezekiel and we're going to Zechariah as well and it starts to get all weird and you have these, these strange beasts and these wheels and these eyes and all of this stuff, just believe it unless it tells you that it's not real. Because it makes sense. Do you think that in heaven there's just going to be people walking about and then some, I guess some uh, angels, you know, with wings on their back and then they'll be the Lord, that's it. Do you think that's what heaven will be like? You don't think you're going to see an awful lot of variants and strange beasts up there? You think heaven is not as uh, multifarious in its life as earth is? Of course it is. We just see a, a glimpse of it. We see a few of its creatures mentioned in the Bible. When we get there, it's going to blow our minds. So please just believe what God says, particularly if he has sworn an oath in a covenant to do it. That's, if, if there's no other um, lesson that you get out of these courses, that is the lesson. 